Hi, this is Eliana Light, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist. Something great to listen to if you're home with COVID or anything else, or even if you don't, whatever COVID or COVIDless state you're in. It's a good thing to be listening to. Hey, you done? Hey, Amanda. You know, I'm feeling a little stressed out. For what reason? What could be having you stressed out? I mean, look, like last week we went really political and it just, I don't know, maybe it felt a little dark, like especially with Hukat where we're getting angry, we're smashing things, we're we're getting a little, I don't know, maybe a little shady in our actions. And I, I think we need a new direction. I think maybe we need something a little bit lighter. Lighter? How? I don't know, like a different direction, somebody that could really light up the Zoom, right? Like somebody that could be on this episode and make a positive difference. Do you have anybody in mind that would be a great addition to this week's episode? Hmm, let's see. Do I know any light people? I do know a light person, Eliana Light. She might be a good pick for this. I think that could be amazing. Do you think she'll go for it? Oh, I'm, I'm sure she will. It'll be great. Let's get her on here. After last week's episode where we were ready to smash... I don't know, something, patriotism, the patriarchy, something like that. We're not entirely sure. We're really excited to head in a different direction this week. And so we thought we might go into a little bit more of a magical, mystical portion. And what better portion is there than to really talk about Shrek, the movie, like an excellent documentary, again, based on biblical texts. Right, Gabe? Uh, not not quite. There, There is a talking donkey in this Torah portion who we'll talk about. But no, this is not the story of Shrek. Wait a minute. So we're not going to hear any musical animals singing? I mean, we might hear some music, maybe. But I thought you promised me that like this particular episode had a decent amount of people who love music. Oh, it does. Okay. So you're telling me that we're talking about music and some crazy fairy tale like magic and a talking donkey, but we're not talking about Shrek? That is correct. I'm going to need some help here. And so, like, I don't know. I need a musician. I need an educator. I need somebody who's going to be able to help me set myself on the right path because clearly I'm looking in the wrong direction. Lucky for me, I have one. I'm so thrilled to be able to welcome Eliana Light to the show today. Eliana envisions a joyful, vibrant, heart-centered Judaism that speaks to the soul and moves the spirit, reminding us that we are all one. She offers professional development to educators, clergy, and lay leaders to elevate and deepen their prayer gatherings, allowing them to offer more meaningful experiences to more people. She is also a sought-after songwriter and performer of catchy, content-rich tunes for all ages, has put out three albums of original music, and is the founder and co-host of the Light Lab podcast. Don't worry, we'll put the link in the show notes. Eliana received her master's in Jewish education from the Davidson School at JTS in 2016 and is based in Durham, North Carolina. And if that weren't enough, talk about magical people who love music and fairy tales and probably would enjoy a talking donkey or two. We're so thrilled to welcome Becky Mann as our Q&A guest today. Welcome, Eliana. Welcome, Becky, to the show. We're so, so thrilled to have you on Drinking and Drashing Tour with a Twist. 
I can't wait to watch this episode of Shrek together. I'm so, so happy to be here. What a joy. It is a joy. It is really, I like to say, more of a joy than a job. And the reason that's so is because of my incredible partners in podcasting. So first up, thrilled to say hello and welcome back to the co-host with, as I like to say, the co-most. What's going on, Gabe? Hey, Amanda. Just want to reiterate, it's still not Shrek. But Becky said it's Shrek. I'm sorry, Becky. We'll get to the distilled Parsha summary in a minute. Okay, I guess maybe we could fix that in post, but the person who would help us do that would be our excellent executive producer, Edon Waldman. Welcome back, Edon. We're thrilled to have you with us this evening. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be back. And uh, as executive producer, I cannot say for sure that it is not Shrek this episode. So what I'm hearing is the people might be interested in watching Shrek. Maybe that might be our next Discord event. Stay tuned. But for right now, let's get started. In last week's Torah portion, the Israelites were kicking a lot of butt, and the Israelites' enemies didn't particularly like getting their butts kicked. One guy, Balak, really doesn't like getting his butt kicked. Balak is the prince of Moab, and all the Moabites are pretty sure that the Israelites are about to kick their butts too. So Balak sends messengers to a guy named Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. Balaam checked with God to see if God would be cool with him cursing the Israelites, and as it turns out, God is not cool with that. So Balaam refuses. When Balak hears of the refusal, he doesn't take no for an answer, so he sends more people and Balaam asks God again. Fine, sighs God, you can go, but you have to do what I say. So Balaam mounts his donkey and rides off with the messengers, but I guess God has a change of heart because God sends an angel, or maybe a messenger, to stand in their way. Balaam's donkey takes one look at the messenger and swerves from the road into the fields. Balaam beats the donkey back onto the road, but the donkey is persistent, pinning Balaam against a wall. Balaam again beats the donkey, but upon seeing the angel the third time, the donkey goes full toddler temper tantrum, lying down boneless on the road. Balaam again beats the donkey, at which point God opens the donkey's mouth and she says, Dude, stop hitting me. Apparently unfazed by the talking donkey, Balaam replies, You're making me look stupid. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. The donkey says, Balaam, my man, I've been your donkey for years. Have I ever steered you wrong? I guess not, replies Balaam. So God opens Balaam's eyes to the angel and Balaam bows to the ground. Finally, says the donkey, probably. The angel approaches Balaam. Why'd you beat the donkey three times? I was the one in your way and I'm here because I don't like this thing you're planning on doing. The donkey saved you because I definitely would have killed you. Balaam apologizes to the angel, though I'm pretty sure the donkey is the one owed an apology, and the angel continues, keep going, but do what I say. When Balaam and Balak finally meet, Balaam reiterates, I can only do what God says. Build seven altars and bring seven bulls and seven rams. Balak does what he's told and Balaam offers a ram and a bull on each altar. Balaam then goes off by himself to talk to God. God appears to Balaam and puts some words in Balaam's mouth. And when Balaam returns to Balak and all the elders and dignitaries, he recites the words that God gave to him. I won't read the poem, but the gist of it is, sorry guys, those Israelites are blessed and sacred and I can't do anything about it. Balak is like, really? And Balaam replies, sorry man, I can only repeat what God gives me. So Balak takes Balaam to the top of a mountain and does that whole dance again, altars and all. So they go to another mountaintop, do the same thing with the altars and bulls and rams, and Balaam looks out and sees the Israelite camp. God speaks through Balaam, blessing the Israelites, Ma tovu, how fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. 
cool. The speech ends, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Balak, who somehow hasn't gotten the message at this point, is furious. Balaam reminds Balak that from the beginning, he said he could only do what God said. Definite theme here. And Balaam gives one last speech foretelling Israel's victory over Moab and all of its other enemies. Cool. But what happened to the talking donkey? Don't worry about it. Meanwhile, some Israelite men are getting a little too friendly with Moabite women and their gods. God, who is pretty sick of people disobeying the pretty simple commandments, seriously guys, there's only like 10 of them, strikes the Israelites with another plague and instructs Moses to have the men killed. Just as Moses is telling people to carry out the order, an Israelite man brings a Midianite woman over to one of his friends in full view of Moses and the whole community. Pinchas, son of Eliezer and grandson of Aaron, follows both the man and woman into their tent and, in one strike, stabs them both through the belly with a spear. The plague ends with 24,000 people dead. And that's Parashat Balak. Well, I know I'm casting Gabe as the narrator in Balak the Musical. Yes, that was very, very well done. It's amazing how much I remember the first part of the story, and very little about the end, or at least I often think about them as two separate episodes, but we have this comic relief almost coming in after this slog, one might say this journey through the desert. Interesting, cute little story, talking animals, angel with a fiery sword, and then we have the zealotry at the end, so that's always fun. There's a lot that goes on in this Torah portion, and I could have, like, truncated that significantly, but it's a fun portion. It's a fun story. Let's get into it. Eliana, I loved what you said before about this idea of having maybe a mini story or a mini break in the middle of a desert slog right in the middle of a really long winding path where we're not entirely sure where we'll end up yet. And I think that's something that you help a lot of people with, especially in terms of Jewish professionals or educators, clergy, lay leaders, people who are trying to find their way, people who are trying to maybe even elevate that path. And the people want to know, how did you get into that work? What inspires you to do that type of work to help other people reach maybe an even higher level of excellence? Thank you so much for that framing. That's really beautiful. I was actually thinking when you introduced that question in a different way, as the story about Balak and Bilam and the donkey is almost a moment of playfulness that we find in the Torah. And I think that excellence that you're talking about can really only be attained through a mode of playfulness. I think prayer is play. I think religion is play. I think all of the things that we're trying to do, trying to teach and share, it can really only come through and be meaningful if there was a sense of play about it. Because to play means that you're in it, right? Play is not when somebody is telling a bunch of information to you. Play is when you are in it with the information, whatever it might be, with the Torah, with the liturgy, with the holidays, and you're thinking and creating and moving and collaborating. And that's really, I think, where the beauty comes from. In terms of how I started in all of this, I was one of those kids that was really into being Jewish. I went to both day school and Hebrew school. I just loved it so much. My father was a rabbi, and my mom's a Jewish educator and social worker, and there was always a sense of Jewish joy in my home. We would have 30 people maybe for Shabbat dinner. I would put on little place for them that went nowhere. And now that I'm an adult, <laughs> I'm like, wow, must have really bugged the heck out of my parents and their friends. But they allowed me to continue lovingly. And 
I've also been writing songs ever since I can remember. And as I grew, and then as I went about 10 years ago already to my first Havana Shira, the Reform Movement Song Leading Convention in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin at Asrui, I realized that song leader was a job that I could have and I could take all of the things I love, leading and praying and playing and facilitation and music and community building and spirituality and that they were all one thing that I could do as a job. It was mind blowing and I thought, that that's it. That's what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. And I do, which is pretty cool, I think. So I will say that Becky and I actually went to each of us our first Havanashira this past year and it was a really wonderful experience. And to use your words, it was really full of Jewish joy. I'm wondering if you can kind of define that for us, because you brought it up and it's like this really wonderful idea. But I'm curious, what to you makes joy Jewish? And what about Jewish joy is different from, I don't know, other joy? That's a really good question. I think what comes up first for me is that there are ways to teach and engage in Judaism where it becomes a list of things you can't do, a list of things you shouldn't do. I know when I was growing up, my family kept Shabbat in a different way than most of the other families around did. And it could have turned into a list of no's. It could have turned into all your friends are going to this party and you can't go. All your classmates are doing this and you can't do it. We can't watch that thing. We can't color on that page. But I don't remember ever thinking about that because the Jewish things that we did were so fun and meaningful. It was all about what we get to do and not about what we can't do. And that framework, I think, is incredibly important. I also think, you know, I'll just speak for myself, I feel my ancestors kind of going back before me and there's been a focus in certain areas of Jewish education, I'd say maybe for the past couple of decades, not anymore, that's really focused on Jewish trauma and on being Jewish because somebody died so that you could do this. And that's certainly one way of teaching it. But then that's Judaism for what and for why. And there has to be a why there. And for me, the joyfulness or the joy of Judaism is about that why. It's saying there's something in here that not only is making my life better or giving my life rhythm, giving my life substance, but actually through me engaging with this ancient conversation that is still going on today, I have the possibility of making the world better. And I think that's where the joy comes from. For me, one of my favorite quotes is from Rabbi Alan Liu. He says, joy is any feeling fully felt. I love that so much. Joy is not fun. Joy is not fun. It's not the opposite of fun, but it's not fun. It's not a day at the carnival. It's something deep and meaningful. There's joy in all of the different feelings if we allow ourselves to feel it with depth. We had a prior guest say that joy was silliness with meaning. And I think that sometimes our Torah portions give us a little hint of that play, a little hint of that silliness with meaning. And for me, I've always been a big believer of names. And I know you said that you love being able to kind of get some messages across. And here we have two kind of opposites in a community. So you have Balak Ben Sipor, which generally translates to a devastating tweeter, right? So Balak means devastator and Sipor means bird. So basically you have somebody who is like 
tweeting out some destructive information. And then you have BLM, who is this person that's supposed to be not of the people, coming from a father who really had a burning, and from a place called Pitzorah, which talks about prophecy. So you have this person who is slightly different from the community, maybe coming in with an outsider's perspective, but with a real love for soothsaying, with a real love for being able to predict or prophecy the future. And I think both of those are part of a community, but I think both of those have different messages that impact the people within that community. And as somebody who creates a lot of information and messaging around tefillah and around music and around potential combining of the two, I'm curious how that works when you have so many different people putting out different messages and how you manage to find ways to reach them all. That's a really beautiful question. It reminds me, first off, this isn't really answering the question, but I love telling the story of Balak and Bilam and the donkey. There's a particular melody from Matovu that I learned when I was a kid, and I'll start teaching it, whatever group I'm in front of, usually like fourth, fifth, sixth graders, and I'll say, you know, this comes from a story in the Torah about a talking donkey. Does anyone want to hear it? And then I'll keep playing, and I'll tell the story. I've done it so many times, and it doesn't matter what group there is. They're totally enraptured, and it's a reminder to me that the facts, quote unquote, whatever information that we want to give over about Judaism, we all have a choice in how to share it and how to engage in it and how to make it playful. I think everybody comes at Judaism and Tefillah from a different place. Some come from a place where their upbringing was a list of no's, a list of things they couldn't do and couldn't be. Some come from a place where Judaism wasn't a part of their life at all, and they discovered it, rediscovered it as an adult. And everyone in between on different sides of the spectrum. A lot of the baggage that people have with Judaism and with prayer especially is often God baggage, which is something I don't think we talk about a lot or enough. When a child says they don't want to do tefillah, they don't want to pray, Often that stems from a discomfort or a rejection of the God idea. And it's not because that kid's trying to be a nudnik. It's because that kid looks around the world and wonders where God is with all of the terrible things that happen and continue to happen in the world. If there was a God, how could the world be this way? And I think the only way to, at least for me, to share and talk about Judaism with any integrity is to be honest about the God idea and be honest about God and the struggles that I personally have had with God understanding and the struggles that a lot of us have but don't talk about. Could walk into a synagogue and see everybody praying and I'll ask teens sometimes, I'll say, you ever been to synagogue and look around and think, do all these people actually believe this stuff? And all their hands go up. We don't think about it as something we necessarily have to talk about because even in this story, it's a fun, cute little story, and there's a blessing at the end, and then at the end, somebody so filled up with the Spirit of God stabs two people, and in the next Parsha, spoiler alert, either gets rewarded for it or tempered for it. That part is kind of up for debate. And again, I don't really know if I'm answering your question at all, but that is to say, if you're in a position as a Jewish educator, I would take into consideration as much as you can, where are people coming from? What is their frame of reference, as you might say, in internet speak? And what is it about Judaism that you want to invite people into? Instead of giving over information, 
We know our best teachers are the ones who are passionate about the material. It's like, I have to teach you math because I love math so much and I'm giving you this gift of math. We don't often think of the same way in Jewish education. I love this so much and I want to give it to you as a gift because I care about you. Whether they open that gift, actually, at least for me, it's really none of my concern. Not everybody's ready for it, especially when you're working with kids. I'll tell them that. I'll say, I want to give you this gift because I care about you. You can open it later. You can open it when you get home. Five years, ten years. But it's yours. It's yours whenever you want it. We have a wonderful teacher at HUC, at Hebrew Union College, who at the end of class on Thursdays will say, and here's your Shabbos gift, and will then give some nugget of wisdom, some story that teacher is Rabbi Norman Cohen. He's definitely not listening to this episode, but we all love him very, very much. Maybe, maybe he's listening. Anyway, one of the things that strikes me about this Torah portion is that for the first, like, most of this Torah portion, the characters aren't Israelites. We have Balak, who is a Moabite prince, who's an enemy of the Israelites. We have Balaam, who, as Amanda said, is very explicitly, like, his name means not of the people. And we have a donkey, and we have these messengers, and none of these people, none of these characters are Israelites. And yet Balaam has this really clearly very close relationship with God. He's one of the few people throughout the entirety of Torah who gets to talk directly with God. We have Balak, who is trying to use God to, you know, kind of give a curse. I'm curious as to how we look at not only like internally when we say like, how do we want to approach God? But how do we look out? How do we look beyond our own communities and really respect that God is a part of so many traditions of so many lives, even beyond the walls of a synagogue? How do we approach Jewish education in a way that not only says this is our tradition, this is what we believe, this is what our tradition teaches us, but also teaches and there are other traditions that also have different ideas that have different things that they say and those are totally respectable and workable and we can work together to build a better world together without any of us giving up what we believe all of this is you know in a roundabout way kind of asking about values education how does the god conversation come into values and how do values really relate back to the god conversation i'm going to start with what you said about a story. And by the way, everybody, this is not how I usually sound. I have COVID. So my throat's real scratchy, but we're making it work. And I'm really grateful. The story is an interlude that almost comes to say, and remember, while the Israelites are going through their wanderings, there's a whole rest of the world out there. And it's important to be in dialogue with that rest of the world. And we're kind of peeking over and seeing what's going on from their perspective. There's an acknowledgement in the Torah that there are other nations with other gods. The idea of monotheism, meaning one god for everybody, is actually a later idea than from the Torah. And I think it's kind of cool to start there and to say every religion, every understanding has a different way of looking at God. And you know, I used to say, if you had asked me this question a couple of years ago, I would have said every religion is more or less a path up the same mountain. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, a path up the same mountain. Everyone's headed 
towards enlightenment, towards a beautiful world, whatever it might be. And they're just different paths. I'm in the middle of an audiobook, and I say in the middle because it's very long, and I really only listen to audiobooks when I'm in the airport, and so I don't know when I'm going to finish this book, but I started it probably a year and a half or two years ago. It's called God is Not One, and it's this religious studies professor from Boston University. Basically, I saw this on my friend's shelf, and I said, that is a provocative title. I must figure out what this book is about. His thesis is that Every religion is actually trying to answer a different question about life in the world. And by saying that all religions are doing more or less the same thing, you're actually conflating them and not giving any of them their proper due or respect. And also, to say that they're all the same negates the very specific things that they're trying to do. For example, Christianity is aiming to solve the problem of sin. Judaism isn't trying to do that. And so... If a Christian might say, well, you should be Christian because here's the problem we're solving for. If you're a Jewish person, that's actually not the problem you're solving for. And this book is really cool. I hope you'll put it in the show notes, going through many of the world's religions and talking about what is this actually trying to do? Because religion developed to help us cope and deal with the world as it is. So it's important to remember that we are not the only ones around, that we're part of a global story. And we can learn a lot about our understandings by hearing the understandings of others and thinking, hmm, that sounds kind of nice, I like that, or saying, I don't really think that's the way I want to understand. And giving ourselves permission that our understandings of God can change and grow as we do, and taking inspiration from wherever we can, I think that's a beautiful thing. And it's important to have that tempered because at the end of the Parsha, we have a, you know, Pinchas, a zealot, stabbing two people based on what God wanted them to do. And I know y'all got political last week, but we live in a country where certain religious factions, not whole religions, but religious factions, are aiming to make the values of this country their own religious values. And we need to remember that it is in our religious values to give everybody the space to practice and be in their religions and to learn from each other and with each other and not to subjugate each other. I don't disagree and I am happy for you to join us in the political picks of this particular podcast. I was thinking about your statement of play and also your statement of what you just said and regarding this idea that governments sometimes take their religious views, take their cultural views and try to dictate them over the entire country they reign in. What's really interesting to me is how much of the Torah ends up repeating itself from past mistakes or issues. In this particular week, if we look in Numbers 22.6, we have a throwback to not one, but two different prior Torah stories, which is really exciting, both of which have a major, major catalytic event that causes a huge shift for the Jewish people. In Numbers 22, 6, it says, I know that whomever you bless is blessed indeed, and whomever you curse is cursed. Well, that actually comes from when God is speaking to Abraham in Parshat Lech Lecha, when we have Genesis 12, 3, and God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse the ones who curse you, right? We're having this pushback to somebody who was like, I'm going to have you go on a journey. I'm going to have you try something different. And I know that this will work. 
more interestingly, potentially, comes right before that in the same verse, where Balak is saying, put a curse upon this people for me since they are too numerous for me. Perhaps I can then defeat them and drive them out of the land. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, it should. It comes from the beginning of our Exodus story. You know, the other thing that we had that caused a big push and a huge catalytic event that made a big difference for the Jewish people. When Pharaoh says in Exodus 1, 9, and 10, hey, yo, the Israelite people are too many for us. They've gotten too big. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they're not able to increase. Otherwise, they might end up like rising against us in war. But also, we should drive them out of the land. It's a little bit of a different Hebrew use in that point. But the idea is there that these major lifestyle decisions come from one message that comes from one leader. And Eliana, you are in fact a leader in the Jewish community, and I would argue in a wider community as a whole. And so if you had one message that you wanted to share that might galvanize a people to action, what would that message be? Wow, I really appreciate that. Certainly hoping a leader for good, unlike Balak and Pharaoh. So, but I understand the comparison. I appreciate it. We are one. That's it. You know, there's a song that I wrote. It ended up on my album, Songs About God. It's called The Mountains. And that's part of the chorus and the repeating part. When I finished writing that song, I was like, I'm done. I have nothing else to say. This is like the core of my understanding of Judaism and the core of what I try to teach. I I did write some more songs after that, but that is to say that it really crystallized it for me. And of course, I'm not the first person to come up with this. It's the Shema, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, which we often translate as Adonai, which means my Lord. But in fact, the root of Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, it shares the root with Lihiot. It has something to do with being, present tense being, Echad is one. That's all there is. And often we say, we are one, and we think of it as an abstract idea. Oh, we're like kind of connected. I want to think about the rest of the world. No, that's like the only thing maybe I can say with certainty. Everything is connected. Certainly the last few years have taught us this, if nothing else. There's no new water. There's no new air. Everything that we do impacts everything else. The past is impacting us even now and what we are doing is impacting future generations what i do here impacts you there and vice versa and if we actually i think if we actually took this idea seriously that we are one we would have totally different economic systems we would have totally different political systems totally different every literally i think every aspect of human life would be different if we took this idea seriously that's how I like to say we have Shema as like a statement, right? yod vav echad And yet in the Aleinu, we say, Bayom hahu yihyeh echad ushmo echad. On that day, yod vav will be one and yod vav name will be one. Well, if we're saying it as a truth in the Shema, why is it something that is Bayom hahu on a particular day? Because Bayom hahu, we're waiting and praying and working towards a day where we actually get it where we all act accordingly, because that day is going to look totally different than it does now. And all the people who are doing social justice work, who are doing education work, who are working towards a better world, they're trying to remind us of this truth and help us act in accordance with that truth. We are one. That's what I have to say about that.
have to say there is something to be said for Eliana ending the last section on this idea that we are one because when I was at HUC and I took a chance, a very scary chance by taking a cantillation class, our Q&A guest kept coming up to me whenever I was afraid to sing or try or mess up and kept saying, no, 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 you're one of us and would literally chant one of us one of us. And it was wonderful. And so I can't tell you how excited I am, not only to welcome Becky Mann as our Q&A guest, but to actually read and share the bio that shouts us out on our own podcast, which is kind of exciting. And so here we go. Becky Mann is a fifth-year cantorial student in the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in New York. When she isn't convincing her class to partake in elaborate pranks, Becky can be found composing new Jewish music, everything from high holy day choral pieces to Hamilton parodies to songs about hamantash and filling. For the past three years, Becky has served as a student cantor at Baltimore Hebrew Congregation in Baltimore, Maryland, and on the leadership team of the URJ Six Points Creative Arts Academy. This coming fall, she'll actually swap lives with Gabe. Wait, you're moving back to Brooklyn? Nope, that's not it. As she begins a new role as the student cantor at Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in Short Hills, New Jersey. But wait, that's not all. Becky holds the world record for the most three-point basketball shots made on a pogo stick in one minute, as well as, and this one floored me, Becky, as the world record for the most shoutouts ever received on drinking and drashing Torah with a twist. Becky, man, what a delight it is to have you take over our show for the next 10 minutes or so. So thrilled to pass you the mic. Thank you, Amanda. I mean, it's a joy to be here. You know, I tell my class all the time, one of my dreams is to be on Survivor, but this is my second top reality show, Drinking and Droshing. So it's really a treat. Thank you for inviting me to be on today. And especially to be on with Eliana, who I haven't met before this day, but I have been a big fan of your music and your podcast as well. I've learned a lot from it. So it's a joy to get to talk with you today. And, you know, going off of what you spoke about Jewish joy, I think there was a lot that resonated with me there, especially this idea that Jewish joy is what gives life rhythm. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you approach your songwriting from a place of Jewish joy. Wow, thank you so much for that question and for being here. This is great. My songwriting comes in a couple of different flavors. And yet, when I think about them, they're all very connected in some way. When I started teaching Hebrew school, as often happens, I find with Jewish songwriters, I realized there's something I want to teach about, and there's not a song about it yet. So there should be a song. Why? Because music and singing is really, I think, the best way to get across content. Music and singing is in a different part of the brain than speaking and reading is. And so when you sing something, it's much more likely to stick. You know, I'm a huge fan of Schoolhouse Rock. I used to know the lyrics to all the songs. I don't know if that's true anymore. Please don't quiz me. But when I write music, especially for kids, it's really on that. How are we going to give across this information in a way that is fun and joyful and really sticky? And then there's the songwriting that speaks to the heart and the soul. Music brings people together and it allows us to feel in ways that words alone could not. And combining those, both the capacity for 
memory and fact retention and the capacity for heart opening and community building. It makes music an incredibly potent and powerful tool that we have in our toolbox. I couldn't agree more. I, in my own life, use music to help me remember things and uh, to teach myself about certain prayers and liturgy. And, you know, one of the things I love about your Light Lab podcast is the way that you take a deep dive into the liturgy. And in this Parsha, we see Matovu for the first time that has made its way into our morning liturgy. It's how we start off many of our morning services. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that prayer in particular and that line of text. What do you think it is about Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov? Why did that make its way into our modern liturgy today? I think even before kind of speculating why, the important thing is to ask the question, how did it get here? And to recognize that somebody made a choice to put it there, which we don't often think about in terms of our liturgy, but we inherited a sidur full of the prayers of our ancestors. Somebody called out to the Holy One. Someone had a response to life, writing in their own words, or more often than not, remixing words and lines from our sacred heritage, from Tanakh, and putting them out in a new way. And it was meaningful enough that it spread around communities, and eventually the printing press came along and everything became a lot more rigid. Yet somebody made the decision to put Matovu there, and it's important not to take that for granted. Why is it there for me? One of the things I think the Sidur invites us to do is to not take as many things for granted. In particular, if we look at the Shacharit, the morning service, Moda'ani, hey, you know what? It's actually a really amazing thing that you're awake. Let's just start there. Matovu, you know what? It's a really cool thing that we have, as I like to say, places to live and people to live in them with. I think a lot of the work I do doing tefillah with kids brings these things out to me. But then I remember that the adults also need the reminders. The sidur, I think, the different tefillot in the sidur, it's almost like my ancestors are speaking to me through the words in the sidur. And that I'm going to hear different things depending on the day. I'm going to notice a different word. Oh, it's tov. That's the word good that I'm focused on today. Or ohalecha. What does it mean to have a tent? I live in a house, not in a tent. What does it mean to live in a place that is a little more fragile, but also totally in community with thousands and thousands of more tents around me? I get to take what I want from that day. It's not like I'm parroting. Bil'am, who in a way, again, is parroting the Holy One within the story. But I get to take the words our ancestors used. And it's a really powerful thing that whoever decided to put Matovu there was consciously picking a line that is not said by an Israelite, that is said by an outsider, reminding us that we are in dialogue with the rest of the world. It's really an incredible thing. And I think that goes right along with what you said about we are all one. The past impacts us. We're all links in a chain. And this prayer in particular, I think, can really remind us of that. You also talked about how one of your goals is in your teaching and your songwriting to invite people in, to invite people into Judaism. And I love that concept. I guess I'm wondering, in your own work, do you have 
when you think about inviting people in, there's such a wide range of people in our Jewish community. We're all one, but we have everything from the children who are looking for something fun and new and maybe filled with movement to our elderly congregants, people that have been a part of a synagogue for 70 years and it's done this way. How do you create a space where you invite all of these people in with your work? That's a really good question. And it's something that on a practical level, a lot of congregations struggle with. They're the the regulars who have been going, as you said, for decades. And then perhaps there's the clergy coming out of our rabbinical and cantorial schools these days imbued with a sense of music and spirituality who want to change things. And that often is where the clash lies. I find that framing things as an invitation is powerful. The Siddur invites us into a particular way of being and a particular way of seeing the world, asks us to question things about our lives. But it's all an invitation, right? I can't actually force somebody to be grateful for the places they live and the people they live in them with. The Siddur offers that to me as an option. So I think, A, framing things as invitations is really important. I think intergenerational moments are really important too. Like I said, the things that I want to say with kids are often the things I want to say to adults. It's just a matter of shifting my tone and how I put that across. I like to say that in my work, I try to speak to the adult in every child and the child in every adult. And also what I mean by invitation is that I am praying or I am using the liturgy as a vessel for my own prayer. That's a big piece of my own personal philosophy, which is the word we use on my podcast, The Light Lab, a lot. Philosophy is that prayer and liturgy are not the same thing. Liturgy are the words we inherited from our ancestors. They started as prayer. They're not prayer anymore. They're liturgy. And through the liturgy, we have the capacity to pray our own prayer, which is a response to life, a presence. However you define that, the liturgy becomes a vessel for that. You can certainly read the liturgy and not be praying. You can pray without the liturgy but they cycle one onto the other. And when I am a shaliach tzibur, this Hebrew phrase for prayer leader, which really means emissary on behalf of the community, at its best, I want to be having an experience that I am inviting people in to join me. I want to invite people into where I am and to go along with me. So often, I'll go to Hebrew schools or day schools where tefillah, feels like we used this word earlier, like a slog, and the teachers are walking around with their fingers on their mouths, shushing, like a prison yard. If it's not joyful, if you, teacher, are talking to somebody in the back, or if you aren't even in the room, or you're walking around shushing people, why would the kids want to do it? You are automatically framing it as a punishment. You're automatically framing it as something that they don't want to do. Invite them in, whether it's kids or whether it's adults. Invite them in and to see it as a gift. One of my favorite metaphors for Jewish heritage is that it's like a treasure buried in your own backyard. And so many people don't even know that it's there. I know stories of people that I know and love, and you might too, who maybe grew up in a normative synagogue space or grew up with little Judaism, who all of a sudden in young adulthood have some sort of yearning to find something greater than themselves. And they try out different things and they go to different countries and they look all around the world and then some of them realize, oh, the treasure was buried in my backyard the entire time. So my job as an educator is to help show people this, 
to do a little digging with them, but then to give them the shovel and say, this is a lifelong thing that you get to do is find all this treasure that was buried in your backyard. I can't show you all of it, but I can maybe tell you that it's there and help you dig. I think that's beautiful. And, you know, not to bring it back to Shrek, but what you're saying is really the moral of Shrek all along, which is the treasure is inside of you. And Gabe is just not okay with the fact that we're bringing Shrek back into this right now. But how can we not? We can't tell anyone to get out me swamp when we all are one. That was beautiful. Kol Hakavod, all of the honor to you. Bringing it back around, Becky, that was great. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. Now that it's been proven that really this Parsha is all about Shrek, or at least connected to it in some way, quick question. Yeah. Do you like making up stories? I do like making up stories, yeah. That's why you do the rundown every week, right? I don't make those up. I very carefully read the Torah portion, and then I do a summary based on that Torah portion. Fair, but don't you do something else based on the Torah portion? Yeah. Do you make that up? I mean, kinda. Like, you know, I read recipes and rely on other people's teachings and knowledge, but yeah, kinda. So that would be kind of like a midrash, right? Like this idea that you know, Parshat Balak and Shrek are the same story, also might be just a midrash. And it seems to me that you might have some sort of, I don't know, a section in this podcast called Midrashic Mixology. I do, in fact. So what's on top for this week? All right. So for Parashat Balak, we present The Twisted Curse. Start off with two ounces of tequila for the original curse. If you don't know why tequila represents curses, then you've never had tequila. That's not the first time I've made that joke on this podcast, and it probably won't be the last. Next up, a half ounce each of Campari and grapefruit juice for all the death at the end of the portion. A half ounce of simple syrup for the sweet blessing, and a half ounce of lime juice as a tasty nod to last year's sassy mule. I really don't think I'll ever top the sassy mule. Anyway, shake all that up with ice and strain over fresh ice, garnishing with the titular twist of an orange rind. For a non-alcoholic version, use two ounces of blood orange juice and one full ounce of grapefruit juice. Blood orange can also be substituted for the grapefruit juice for those who cannot eat grapefruit. Make one for you and one as a long overdue apology to that donkey that you kept beating. L'chaim. L'chaim. Major shout out for bringing it back to the treatment of the donkey. This is also an animal rights parsha. But no, I would definitely have the non-alcoholic version of this. I love a citrus drink. I got to go with Eliana. I want to go get some of that blood orange juice right now. That sounds great. Well, let me know what you think. I am very excited to hear about it. And yeah, let's all take a moment to like really think about the donkeys in our lives who are really really, really owed an apology. Donkey! Well, now that I know what Gabe's going to make the next time Becky comes over, I guess I can say that we're in for some bittersweet times, maybe, because, yeah, we've made it to our last section, our thank yous and closing cues. And so Eliana, Becky, Gabe, Idan, and Balak, we find blessings through challenges, 
right? A process that so inspired us that we've incorporated it into daily liturgy, as Becky and Elena spoke about before, specifically in Matovu. How might we transform our challenges and curses daily into blessings and opportunities? Eliana, we'll start with you. Wow, it's a big question. And I almost want to give an anti-answer at first, if that's okay. There's a way to think about transforming our challenges and curses into blessings and opportunities in a personal way that can be very powerful. How can I see what is challenging me as an opportunity to learn, as an opportunity to grow? But just like curses can become blessings, blessings can also become curses. And I would want to temper us to think when bad things happen to someone else that it's some kind of blessing or that they deserve it in some way or that it's there for them to learn about. I don't think everything happens for a reason. I think some things just happen and there's always something that we can learn or take from what has happened and to ask ourselves, how can I see this as a growing opportunity? Sometimes things just suck. I don't know. Maybe that's where I am in these days. But there's so many theologies that say, oh, actually, whatever bad things happen to you are your own fault because you didn't see them as good things. Just something I always want to caution us against. That was an anti-answer. Someone else can give an actual answer. I really appreciate it. And let me know if you ever want to read my theology on suffering and disorientation, because I feel like we have some things in common. A hundred percent. Yes. (laughs) Becky, what say you? This question of how do we transform our challenges into blessings actually has me thinking about, if I take us a few months back to Purim, there's a verse from the book of Esther that actually my good friend, Isaac Sanadasor, shout out, and I wrote a song about a line in there in which Mordechai says to Esther when she comes into power, he says, who knows if it wasn't, maybe this is the time that you've come into power just for this reason. In a challenging moment sometimes, we might want to shrink and look at the world around us as a curse, when in fact, that challenge could become an opportunity for a blessing. Beautiful. That's a quote that's been staying with me recently as well. And it is a beautiful song. And if we have a link to it, we'll try to share it on the show notes as well. Just to get that viewership up because you deserve it. Hi, Gabe, what are you thinking? You know, I'm actually thinking about how I was first introduced to Eliana Light and to her music, which was through the really incredible song, Tap Your Heart. And the reason that this like really jumps out to me at this moment is because this song, Tap Your Heart, is a family-friendly, is that how you would say that? A family version of Ashamnu, of the recitation of sins that we've all committed in the last year that we say at the High Holidays. And when I use this, and I use it with kids of really all ages, when I use this, I really emulate what I saw Eliana do in the video that she has on YouTube of everybody make a fist and everybody kind of hold it to your chest and tap on your heart. And we're not trying to hurt ourselves. We're not, you know, punching ourselves. We're just kind of knocking at a door. We're saying, wake up, heart. It's time to wake up. 
And A, I just love that imagery. And I love this idea of taking what could be viewed as a really like self-flagellating, as like a really like we're trying to hurt ourselves, we're punishing ourselves for our sins, and instead saying, no, wake up. It's time to wake up. So that's where my head goes, is to this idea of like maybe those times when we have challenges And even in those times when we create our own challenges, when we make mistakes, those are opportunities for us to tap our hearts and to say, like, wake up. This is a wake up call. It's time to, you know, spring into action. It's time to do something different. I always like thank yous and closing cues because it enables us to not wake up because he's always present during these conversations, but to maybe shed some light on our executive producer, Idan. And so, Idan, what are you thinking you give me a bit too much credit <laughs> in that I always feel like I'm almost scrambling to find an answer to these, but I feel like most of the time I am able to think of something that I think has you know some meaning to it. One thing that came to mind was from uh, what Eliana was saying before uh, answering this question, you know, we try to learn from these negative things that happen to us, right? Sometimes we need to kind of just take what we've learned and create our own blessings and opportunities out of them. And you know, Becky and Gabe both already gave examples of ways they can do that. But I think also to be very like frank about it, sometimes we just have to make humor out of things. And that's kind of how a big way of us as Jews <laughs> tend to make it through things. I was just chatting with my wife, Agnes, about this. And uh, yeah, humor and memes tend to be how we kind of cope, at least in this house. <laughs> yeah, that's what comes to mind for me. I always think that humor is a good tool. It's not always my best appropriate tool sometimes, but it is always one of my most used tools in the toolbox. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I actually want to give a shout out to my CPE intern cohort member, Will Sheldon. We've been talking about suffering a lot in CPE and how to theology, and Will said something a few weeks ago and also again this week saying that suffering is not good, but good can come from suffering. So suffering is not good, but healing is good. And I think in order to not bright line it, right, in order to not just kind of put a glitter finish on kind of a crappy moment, I think I agree with that. I think the ability to meet people in their dark places, the ability to like really meet each other in the shadows when we're suffering can be good. It can be a moment where like we let each other in. And I think that those things can be blessings and a reminder that we are not alone in that, that we're not alone in our moments that seem like curses or challenges. And I have to tell you, as somebody who is not in the HECJR cantorial class, I have seen that continuously occur since COVID hit, that, you know, a group of people are constantly supporting each other through challenge, whether digitally or virtually or in person. And that's been a really beautiful thing to see. And also something that we try to do on this podcast too is, Be present with all of our listeners, whether you are listening at home, washing dishes or on the subway or driving or, you know, falling asleep to the sound of our voices. We know that Gabe has a great voice for radio, but we hope that, you know, people are able to talk about some of the difficult moments and find blessings in that conversation. And Eliana, Becky, people might want to continue these types of conversations with you. And if they do, how might they be able to find or follow you? This time, we'll start with Becky. You can find me on Facebook at Becky Mann. You can find me on Instagram at Tora the Explorer. And you can find me on SoundCloud. You could listen to music on YouTube. Just look up my name, 
Becky Mann. If you like what you hear, it's me. If you don't like what you hear, it's Gabe. Incredible words from the best man at the Debbie Freeman School of Sacred Music. Eliana, if people want to find or follow you, how can they do so? Yes, first of all, Tora the Explorer, really high-class Instagram name. You can follow the Light Lab, trying to get some good tefillah content out there on the internet, on Instagram at thelight.lab or on Facebook at thelight.lab. You can find my music at Eliana Light on YouTube, Spotify, wherever music is <laughs> that you can find it. My website's elianalight.com. Please reach out. Be a part of the tefillah conversation we're having together. Amazing. I love it. And as promised, just in case she found the time to come up with a joke by the end of this episode, Eliana, Becky, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? I'm just worried that any joke that I do now would be balakluster. <laughs> nice. I just want to let PETA know, if they're listening to this, that no donkeys were harmed in the making of this podcast. So true and very important. Thank you both. Thank you, Eliana. Thank you, Becky, for not only bringing your love of music, but also your love of lifting up meaning in storytelling, in community, in our ability to engage in either liturgy or prayer or both if one decides to engage that way. Thank you to Gabe for really just putting up with the amount of Shrek jokes that we made for the second year in a row and for Becky for supporting my Shrek-directed activities. Thank you to Idan for dealing with us as he just came back from yet another trip. We're really grateful to have you with us, and we're so sorry that we keep making you record late night. Thank you to Kate for making us sound brilliant all the time, and thank you to you, our listeners. We think you're incredible. Stay tuned for our conclusion coming at you soon. Hey, Amanda. What's up? So... I really enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation that we got to have with Eliana and the conversation that Becky and Eliana had together. It was really like fun, meaningful and fun. It's almost like it was, you know, joyful. Sure. I mean, I know Eliana spoke to this idea that joy has meaning to it, right? That joy isn't always fun, that it's something that really matters. It's something that's deeper within us. And I think there's something to be said for that when it comes to prayer as well, right? This idea of tefillah, this idea of being able to connect to the words that we're speaking as we hear them and see them and take ownership of them, not as necessarily they were handed down to us. Right. You know, I know I've talked on the podcast before about the difference between keva and kavana, you know, and how I talk about that, especially with B'nai Mitzvah students and their families about Keva is the set liturgy. It's the stuff on the page. It's the stuff that we do because somebody else did it and we're told to do it because that's what Jews do. And the Kavana is what we bring to it. It's the intention. It's our feelings and our emotions. And we can't have just one without the other. And what I really love that Eliana talked about was that yeah, somebody took this line from this Torah portion, took Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov, and said, that's a line that bears repeating. That's a line that bears repeating every day. Because all keva was kavana at some point. And I just love that idea. I love that image of somebody sitting and saying, you know what? This is a beautiful space. What a beautiful day this is. What a beautiful community. Just an incredible, incredible image. 
I think so, too. I also think it's grounding. I mean, look, we spent a lot of time in Exodus and Leviticus talking about tabernacles and beauty and building. And I think here there's something grounding in this fact that we're talking about tents and Jacob. And yeah, we get the Israel in there, too. But I think this reminder of who we are and where we came from matters, especially as we try to figure out where we're going to next. Sure, and all of that in the midst of this Torah portion that for the most part really isn't about any Israelites. It's about these other people. You know, Eliana at the beginning kind of like tongue-in-cheek said that this was almost a comedic relief Torah portion. That this is something that, you know, it comes in the middle of a lot, as you said, of darkness and really difficult stuff that's going on. And now we get a talking donkey. Like, it's silly. But yeah, it ends up being so grounding. Yeah, I mean, especially as people are on their way to Duloc. No, no, no. They're... Amanda, they're on their way to the promised land, to, to Israel, to the land of Israel. Well, I guess it's really good that I wasn't the one in charge of directions then. For multiple reasons. Fair. Look, at least I can say this. I'm pretty sure I've got the direction right on... Being truly thankful for being able to create these episodes and find meaning in the conversations that we're having together and finding blessings during some days that are just really difficult, especially when I'm going back to back to back with work or CPE or meeting friends or recording episodes. Life can be a little crazy, but don't for a second think that we take you, our listeners, for granted because we really don't. If you're interested in helping us stay on the air, please, please, please check out drinkingandrashing.com and feel free to hit that support us button, that donate button. We could really always use a little bit of help from you to keep us afloat because, believe it or not, putting this together actually costs a little bit of money and, you know, we'd like to make sure that our people get fairly paid and paid on time. We hope that all of you are doing well as you are enjoying your summer and looking forward to what's coming up soon. We know we're excited to continue exploring our pursuit with you as we create these episodes weekly. And as always, we raise our glasses to you this week. Lechaim. Lechaim. Hi, this is Becky Mann, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing Torah with a Twist, and Justice for Donkey!